Well, it's hard to imagine what kind of gun control law would have stopped the incident at all from occurring. Um, the shooter in Aurora had no criminal record, had no adjudicated history of mental illness. He was seeking uh, therapy, but just the fact you're seeking therapy does not mean you're so mentally ill that you uh, are disbarred from uh, uh, from owning a gun. So uh, there's no laws, background checks or whatnot that would have prevented him from obtaining firearms at all. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. My co-host, Craig Williams, uh, is otherwise occupied right now and not able to be with us right now, Uh, but uh, we're going to forge ahead without him today. Uh, Before we get going, I, of course, want to thank our sponsors, Clio, web-based practice management application, which is available at goclio.com. Uh, App River, uh, email and web security experts. Find out more about App River at appriver.com. And a PC Law from LexisNexis. For a free trial of PC Law, go to pclaw.com slash radio. Well, Bob, it's a horrific scene that's become all too familiar in America. A heavily armed gunman opens fire on a crowd, killing scores of innocent men, women, and here even children. This time it happened on July 20th in a packed Aurora, Colorado movie theater during the midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises. Twelve people were killed, Craig, uh, 58 Injured, the accused gunman was caught by police right away outside the theater. And with that, the legal maneuvering of prosecutors and defense attorneys began. Uh, we're going to talk about this incident today and talk a little bit uh, more generally about some of the implications uh, of this uh, within the legal space. Uh, joining us to do that today are two guests. First of all, we'd like to welcome to the show. Professor Daniel Filler. Professor Filler is from the Earl Mack School of Law at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Uh, Dan studies the effects of social anxiety on the development of criminal law. He's also an expert on the death penalty. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network, Dan Filler. Thank you. Good to, to have an opportunity to be here. And Bob, adjoin, joining us again is uh, as a returning guest is Professor Adam Winkler from UCLA School of Law. Adam is a specialist in American constitutional law. He's also the author of the book, Gunfight, the Battle over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Adam. Thanks for having me. Well, we saw in the news just this week that, uh, that the suspect in the, uh, in the Colorado shootings is charged with 24 counts of first-degree murder, 116 counts of attempted murder. Uh, we want to get into all of this in a lot more specifics, but but uh, Professor Filler, just uh, what's your what's your reaction to to the charges that were brought this week? What do you think about that? Well, they certainly were what we expected. Um, you, you knew that they would charge him fully, and uh, it doesn't seem like it's a reach uh, to call the killings murder and and everything else attempted murder. Um, and they charged them. Uh, they charged him very completely in the sense that they charged him both with intentional acts and also uh, with uh, 
high degree of recklessness so that the district attorney has a fallback in case there's a skeptical juror who for some reason believes that uh, Mr. Holmes didn't intend to actually kill anybody. So no real surprises. And Adam, what, what's your sense of how the defense is going to handle this? Should we be expecting an insanity plea? And if so, how does Colorado treat an insanity plea? I would expect we will see uh, an insanity plea. I'm not an expert on Colorado law, so I don't want to purport to, to be one. Uh, but uh, it, it seems clear that he was seeking psychiatric uh, counseling. Uh, and uh, judging from what we've heard about reports from uh, his statements inside the prison uh, or inside the jail, uh, that uh, he doesn't understand why he's even uh, being held. It sounds like he's uh, definitely lost touch with uh, with reality. And Professor Filler, this is a case uh, where there's certainly going to be a lot of discussion about the death penalty. Uh, what is your take on that? I mean, is this a case where there is going to be really any debate about it, or are they going to be seeking the death penalty here? Well, I'm sure it's going to go through a process that makes it at least appear like the prosecution is being thoughtful. But I have very little doubt uh, that they will seek the death penalty in this case. The politics of it, I think, make it um, pretty much an imperative for a district attorney um, in Colorado to seek death. So, you know, it remains to be seen, but I certainly expect that that's the direction it's going to go. And Adam, there was some news on CNN this morning that I heard where the uh, the shooter was was uh, treated by a school psychologist. But when he left, the uh, and the school psychologist had told uh, the university and apparently had told some colleagues that she wanted to do some more testing on him. She thought he was a little unstable. And then he dropped out of the doctoral program and she said, by law, I can't do anything further. Do we need to get that law changed? And is that, in fact, the law? Uh, well, I don't know if we need to get the law changed or not. I'm very hesitant to make many statements. We don't really know exactly what was said, exactly what kinds of warnings she gave to the university, or exactly what kind of information she had. You know, there's a famous old case, uh, the famous Tarasov case, that does say that uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist can be held liable in tort for someone's um, for the injuries caused by a patient if there was a specific identifiable imminent threat. Uh, that was communicated to the therapist. Uh, we don't even know if that has if that standard's been met yet. So there are way too many facts that are uncertain with regards to uh, his therapy to know exactly uh, how the law is going to play out in that regard. Hey, can I just follow up on that with Professor Feller? I'm, I'm wondering uh, whether you see. I mean, I, I know one of the things you've talked about is written about is is the, uh, the need for perhaps. Uh, uh, a better ability of the criminal justice system to identify uh, the need for uh, rehabilitation, the need for uh, mental health uh, assessment uh, and uh, treatment, perhaps, uh, with respect to certain kinds of offenders. What do, you, what do you make of a case like this where there's kind of no, there, there are no warning signs, there's no radar, there's nothing on the radar to, 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 to let us know uh, this might be in the offing. I mean, how, should, the, should the criminal justice system address a case like this in, in, in a different way because of that? Well, I don't know. Well, so first of all, I mean, this does, we have a lot uh, uh, to learn, as Adam points out, about so many details in the run-up uh, to this. And whether or not we learn it, certainly the lawyers will. I mean, I think this case is going to be a mental health case from the start. In fact, I mean, I think there's a, 
a legitimate question when and whether this case proceeds immediately to trial, because there are real questions of competency here, whether or not uh, Mr. Holmes really is capable of understanding what's going on and helping his attorney. Um, and then I think, uh, imagine that the insanity defense is likely to proceed and, and there's going to be a lot of information that surfaces in the course of that. It's not clear what the criminal justice system is in a position to do sort of preventively to stop cases like this. Every state uh, has a mechanism by which a person who is seriously mentally ill and a dangerous to himself or herself or to other people, every state has a mechanism for that person to be brought in for evaluation and potentially hospitalized. That's really not the job of the criminal law. The criminal law more or less handles the aftermath. And we're going to see the criminal law's relationship to mental health issues in the form of competency issues, in the form of an insanity defense. And in fact, if the prosecutor seeks a death penalty, I think we would expect uh, that it's likely that the defense counsel would be surfacing the very same issues that came up with this uh, school counselor that would come up at a competency hearing and again at the insanity phase. Those issues are just going to appear and reappear throughout this case uh, because truly the only uh, defenses, it appears, that are going to be really potent, at least at the guilt and innocence phase, are going to be related to these mental health questions. Well, let's take a look at the issues uh, on some of the tort issues surrounding this. Not only does the uh, school psychologist face some potential liability, Adam, what about the the uh, movie theater? I, you know, the I don't think it's the standard that people get screened like you get screened at the airport or going into a courthouse. Uh, to go into a movie theater, but does the movie theater here have any kind of liability for this? Well, it all turns on foreseeability. Um, a place that hold, a business that holds itself open to the public may be liable in tort, even for the criminal acts of a third party, if that business uh, had knowledge, uh, foreseeable knowledge, it was foreseeable to them based on knowledge that something like this could occur. Uh, we'll have to depend. Uh, we'll have to depend on what the facts are of this case. It seems that, from what we know, that the shooter bought a ticket and then exited through the emergency exit, propped the door open, and then was able to bring the guns in the back way. Uh, were there previous incidents of criminal acts happening because of someone propping the door open? Uh, had kids been sneaking in, for instance, by one kid buying a ticket and then opening up the door for others? Why wasn't that emergency door secured more uh, with an alarm or something else that would? Uh, uh, signal to other people in the theater or to the theater operators uh, that uh, the door was being opened. That's going to be a question uh, that we'll have to see as it plays out when more facts come out. And let's take this one step further. I mean, it's kind of obvious, given that the shooter imitated a character in the movie, which, which he shot up uh, as the Joker, that he was imitating what was happening uh, in the second version of this of this movie, the second uh, incarnation. So and that character, because I've seen the movie, was probably the most evil character I've I've ever seen in a movie. What kind of liability do, do the movie makers face for creating such an evil character that could be that this person you then used to emulate and carried out something that's not exactly the same, but boy, it sure isn't much different than the character uh, did in the second movie. 
I don't think there's any liability that the uh, movie production companies or producers will face. Uh, we've had cases in the past where uh, parents have claimed that children listening to uh, violent or misogynistic um, uh, music uh, led them into violence, uh, but uh, those cases never really go very far. Uh, and indeed, it's hard to say that it's foreseeable just because you have an evil character that someone's going to be a copycat and go into a movie theater and uh, try to kill as many people as they can. Uh, it's pretty far-fetched to think that uh, the mere artistic creation of an evil character uh, is going to lead to violence itself. So uh, I don't think there's any likelihood of the movie, the movie production companies uh, being held liable in this case. Needless to say, the big uh, issue uh, of debate raised by this case uh, is, uh, is a revisiting uh, of the gun control debate. And uh, Adam, of course, you've written a book on this topic, uh, Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. Uh, would gun control laws have, have made a difference here, uh, do you think? Uh, are, are Colorado's gun control laws uh, in any way to blame for what happened here? Well, it's hard to imagine what kind of gun control law would have stopped the incident at all from occurring. Um, the shooter in Aurora had no criminal record, had no adjudicated history of mental illness. He was seeking uh, therapy, but just the fact you're seeking therapy does not mean you're so mentally ill that you uh, are disbarred from uh, uh, from owning a gun. So uh, there's no laws, background checks, or whatnot that would have prevented him from obtaining firearms at all. There's been some focus on the AR-15, the so-called assault rifle that he used that had a 100-round magazine that was uh, attachable to it. Uh, and Some have suggested that maybe we could limit those types of firearms. We did try to limit those firearms in federal uh, under federal law in 1994 to 2004, the law was um, notorious in gun circles for being ineffective. Gun manufacturers simply skirted the law by changing a few minor superficial characteristics on the firearm, uh, and people were able to have basically the same firearm. Um, but it's possible that some restriction on uh, the size of magazines might have some effect. And Daniel, there's been some argument that the amount of ammunition that the shooter was able to obtain in the months leading up to the to the uh, massacre should have triggered some inspection or should have triggered some type of a uh, at least knowledge of some law enforcement officials that someone was out buying tons of am not tons but a lot of ammunition more than six thousand rounds. Well, I mean, in a sense, these are. This speaks to the broader question of, of uh, to what degree are we willing to have the government get involved in issues around firearms. So the number of people who have a routine need for uh, semi-automatic semi weapons is limited. Uh, the number of people who have a need for that quantity of ammunition is limited. Uh, but... It's not like uh, policymakers uh, aren't aware that that's true, but there is a, a very strong popular support for hands-off of a lot of these regulations. So um, do I think that people are going to try to use this incident as, uh, as a way to make the case for some more control? And I think the answer is yes. Whether it'll make a difference is very much unclear. And it's very much unclear whether or not if there had been a regulation that triggered scrutiny of a large purchase uh, of ammunition, whether or not this guy would have bought less 
or found some way around it. It's really hard to know and it's very hard to project what any particular new regulation would have done and whether it would have made a difference in this case. And I'd like to, if I can, can I jump in here on this uh, 6,000 rounds of ammunition? You know, this has made a lot of headlines, how many rounds of ammunition uh, the Aurora shooter had. Um, and it does seem like an awful lot uh, of um, uh, rounds to be able to fire. However, if you know a little something about guns uh, and shooters, recreational shooters, the number of 6,000 rounds of ammunition really isn't that uh, alarming a number. Uh, I took a group of students to the shooting range um, uh, here in Los Angeles, students who are in my one of my classes at UCLA Law School uh, as part of a charity auction giveaway. Uh, and we uh, spent about an hour there, and, and we fired off about 500 rounds of ammunition. Um, that's what you do when you go to a gun range. You fire lots of rounds of ammunition. Any system that we had in place that would have alerted government officials um, uh, to the fact that this person had bought 6,000 rounds of ammunition would have been lost because it would have been in lo- lost because many, many thousands of shooters uh, are purchasing this amount of ammunition. It is just not an absurd amount of ammunition to someone who is an avid shooter of firearms. But what's the argument for allowing these kinds of fire? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about manufacturers kind of skirting the law on assault weapons, but, but what's the argument for allowing these kinds of weapons to be sold to the general public? Well, uh, it depends on uh, what you mean by these weapons. Uh, you know, well, assault, uh, assault, assault weapons, uh, yeah. Well, an assault weapon is really not that, uh, it sounds like a very awful thing to call it an assault weapon, but an assault weapon is essentially a rifle that is a lightweight rifle that shoots relatively low-powered ammunition. Uh, an average uh, uh, rifle that you would use to hunt deer shoots a much more powerful round of ammunition than an assault rifle. An assault rifle essentially shoots relatively small rounds of ammunition, uh, more similar to that shot by a handgun than that shot by uh, a deer hunting rifle or a big game rifle. So I don't know. It just depends on what you really expect to accomplish. There are probably 15 to 20 million AR-15s or AR-15 copies out there in circulation in America. You could ban the sale of new ones, but uh, it's not going to be that effective in light of the fact there's already so many out there. And you're not barring far more powerful weapons like deer hunting rifles or things like that. And what what is the status of of, uh, Colorado's law, and this is something I don't know, on the ability to carry weapons? Um, Had someone in that theater been carrying a weapon, they might have been able to take care of the shooter. Well, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of the idea that uh, our public policy should be to encourage shootouts in public places, especially a dark theater filled with tear gas and chaos. Uh, However, many in the gun community do think that is the answer. Colorado does allow people to carry concealed weapons with a permit. Uh, However, this particular theater had its own rule, as local uh, business establishments are entitled to have, uh, that bar uh, the possession of firearms on the premises. But I don't think the possession of firearms on the premises would have made a big difference. So not theoretically impossible. It does happen occasionally that uh, we do see uh, um, shooters be able to fight back. But uh, it's just not, uh, uh, seems unlikely in this case that would have made any difference, especially given the fact that he was expecting to be shot at. He was wearing complete body armor, protecting every little piece of his body uh, from, uh, from being shot. We need to take a short break. Uh, at this point. Uh, Stay with us and we're going to be back in just a few minutes to talk much more about the uh, Colorado movie theater massacre when Lawyer to Lawyer returns. (laughs) 
Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. But I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the excitement is they're now able to realize the the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh. I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com radio. That's PCLaw.com radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. Protect your firm's email with AppRiver. Send confidential emails with confidence using AppRiver's CypherPost Pro email encryption service. With CypherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel any time, and you get a 30-day free trial. All backed by AppRiver's phenomenal care. Visit AppRiver.com, that's A-P-P-River.com, or call 866-223-4645. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five-minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network, plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781-551-9960, that's 781-551-9960, or by emailing admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Be a Legal Talk Network featured lawyer now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Our guests today are Professor Adam Winkler from UCLA School of Law and Professor Daniel Filler from the Earl Max School of Law at Drexel University. Let's 
let's uh, continue our discussion on this. And let's talk just a bit about the shooter. Uh, very meticulous planning, multiple weapons. Uh, apparently, he had with him a, a 12-gauge shotgun, a Glock pistol, a Smith & Wesson semi-automatic, and a high-capacity drum clip. And as Adam noted earlier, he's fully protected with body armor and tear gas and tremendously more. Um, seems to me we have premeditation here. Uh, Professor Filler? Well, uh so the the issue in Colorado is going to be whether you have intentionality. I mean, did he have premeditation? It would certainly seem that way. But even uh, if he merely intended to go about this act, that would suffice under the law. It certainly looks like this is a, a man who had a developed plan that, that unfolded not over five minutes or two hours, but over days and weeks. And that's going to be particularly significant with respect to the insanity defense, because the insanity defense is premised on the idea in Colorado that you don't know that your act is wrongful. And um, this kind of preparation, first of all, suggests that he's not so mentally ill that he's incapable of doing um, relatively complex planning and advanced planning. And some of it may also suggest that he understood that what he was doing was wrong and would, had it been detected, would have been prevented. So I think that all of this advanced planning actually is going to be a, a huge part of the prosecution's case here, not just because it proves intentionality, because it probably uh, goes a long way towards disproving the insanity defense. Yeah, and we have a situation that happened here in Irvine just in the last couple of days in Irvine, California, where a university professor at UCI lost his son uh, to suicide. Uh, he blamed it on the school at here at University High School and, and particularly blamed the principal or vice principal as well as a school counselor. And he was uh, caught trying to uh, start fires, and he wanted he, some of his emails to his wife had said that he intended to burn down the entire campus, kills 200 students, uh, rape and essentially pillage uh, the, the, the school campus and particular people in, in mind. It, let's just drop back for a second to the 50,000-foot level here and, and notice that there's, you know— uh, this guy, the shooter in Colorado, dropped out of college after flunking his doctoral examination, his qualifications. Uh, here we have a situation in Irvine where a, a dad lost a son. What's really going on with society that we don't see any alternative, at least some of the people don't see any alternative, other than retribution on a massive scale? It, it, are we having a, a breakdown in societal mores and, and morals, or, or what's going on that or are, are there always going to be a few people on the lunatic fringe that we have to put up with? I certainly would hesitate to say that we've suddenly crossed some line. I mean, we're a very large country. This is a country of well over 300 million people. So in a country with this many people, um, you're going to expect that some really bad things are actually going to happen on occasion. Um, what happened in Colorado does not happen that often, thankfully. I mean, we see a low-level uh, kind of violence in this country, which isn't triggered necessarily by these same kinds of, you know, intense, intense uh, breakdowns. We see that in cities with murder rates. Uh, we see that uh, in domestic violence. 
Um, so I would be hesitant to, to look at the Colorado case and to look at the Irvine case and see them as markers of some sort of social transformation in a bad way. Um, and the other thing that I would say, and I think this is important for people to recognize happens, is once you have a situation uh, like this Colorado case, or like Columbine years ago, what you're going to see next over the next weeks and months is a kind of recurring theme in the media, so that any time it's possible to tell a story that will invoke the anxieties that have been triggered by this Colorado case, you're going to see those stories reported. And so this case in Irvine, I think, resonates much more in the aftermath of uh, the Colorado case because it triggers very active anxieties. So not only would I say I'm not convinced that these two cases mark any kind of change, but I would be skeptical that maybe much is different today than it was a year ago or two years ago. It may appear that more of these cases are happening but it might simply be that this low level of activity will be much more thoroughly reported in the immediate aftermath of this uh, Colorado incident. Well, when you, when you in, in our introduction of you, Professor Filler, we described you as someone who studies the effects of social anxiety and the development of criminal law. Are, are you looking at that from the point of view of, of the social anxiety of the individual who engages in criminal conduct or of, the, of, of, of how we as a society respond to criminal law? How, how, so I, I, I look at the way that how we as a society respond to criminal law. Um, and it, so, for example, in the aftermath of a crime, lots of different things can happen. And in the aftermath of, for instance, the Sandusky uh, uh, cases out at Penn State, we began to see this critical look across the country at whether we had adequate laws with respect to sexual offenders, whether we had adequate reporting laws. And it triggered, I think, a lot of concern and anxiety. Um, but it's not clear that that incident really told us something new that we needed to know and that would justify new laws. Uh, because it turns out that most of the laws in place in Pennsylvania, had they been used properly, would have made a huge difference. So in the aftermath of this Colorado incident, I would expect people to ask questions about, for example, gun control. And uh, we saw in the aftermath of Columbine that that's exactly what happened, that gun control advocates in the aftermath of Columbine tried mightily to make the case that what we needed was new gun controls. And this was debated in Congress, and ultimately the laws were not adopted. But we did see that these incidents are particularly useful to advocates who will want to take advantage of the story to make the case for the particular legal changes that they want. And frequently, these advocates were pre-existing before the even case, these cases. So we know there are loads of people who support gun control, and they may take advantage of this case to try to tell their story more powerfully. That's what we see in the aftermath of these incidents. Anxiety surges, and a lot of people who are kind of entrepreneurial uh, take advantage of that anxiety, trying to use that anxiety to get new laws that they want adopted. We just had that happen in Massachusetts with the new three strikes law. I mean, it, I, it, it was uh, reactive to specific incidents uh, in the legislature. It took 10 years to react, perhaps, but but the legislature has uh, just uh, passed the new three strikes law that was reactive to a specific uh, a specific incident. Uh, and Adam, do you see that as, I mean, do you see anxiety as driving gun control laws or, or sort of reactive uh, lawmaking? 
And, and Bob, before we get Adam to answer that question, we need to uh, wrap up because we're just about at the end of our program. So Adam, as you answer that question, if you could please also give us your final thoughts along with your contact information. Sure. Well, anxiety has fueled both the gun control movement and the gun rights movement. Many people who possess firearms or who want to possess firearms do so because they're fearing criminal uh, action. We should remember that even though this was a horrible shooting and obviously tragic, um, uh, crime rates are at uh, 40-year lows in most of our major cities. Uh, So we're not in a time where we should be as worried about crime as perhaps we may be. Um, uh, I'm a professor of law at UCLA, and you can find me uh, on the web if you search Adam Winkler. Uh, you'll come up with my webpage, or you can follow me on Twitter, at Adam Winkler, uh, and read my stuff in the Daily Beast and the Huffington Post. Great. Thank you very much. And Professor Filler, your final thoughts and contact information, please. Well, my, my thinking is that this case is going to turn out to be a case that really demonstrates for people a lot about uh, competency and about insanity in the criminal justice system. Mental health is going to be center stage, and if it goes to the death penalty phase, it'll be center stage there as well. Uh, I am a blog, I'm a regular blogger at uh, the facultylounge.org, um, and you can follow my Twitter feed at Daniel M. Filler, and I am at Drexel University Earl Mack School of Law. Great. Well, thank you both very much for being our guests today and addressing this uh, this terrible tragedy and the aftermath that coming from it. Uh, your thoughts have been very helpful to kind of help sort through what's happened and what will be happening. Bob, what are your th- what are your final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't have much to say beyond what the guests have said. I mean, I I, I think uh, Professor Filler uh, in, in his closing remarks was was uh, correct that this is uh, primarily going to end play out to be. Uh, a case about the criminal justice system's response to a, a mental health issue. It's not a gun control issue necessarily. Uh, I am not an expert uh, on, on guns, as, as Adam Winkler is, uh, or on gun control. I, I certainly uh, tend to favor uh, uh, stricter gun control laws uh, than, uh, than exist uh, in Colorado, uh, but uh, uh, I uh, cannot claim to be uh, anywhere near uh, as well uh, informed or well studied on this uh, topic as uh, Adam Winkler is. So I certainly defer to his thinking on this and urge our listeners to get his book <laughs> and and consider it uh, for themselves. Yeah, it's a tough issue. I mean, there's good arguments on both sides for uh, for the situation in terms of gun control, but you're right; it is really more of a mental health issue here. And, uh, you know, the, the overall anxiety that it creates among people, uh, probably keeping them from the movie theaters uh, and perhaps from some public places and causing a little bit more wariness. I, I know that probably this particular massacre was the reason that, that I've started trying to look around when I go to places and say, where's the exit? Where can I hide? Which is kind of a terrible thing to have to do. But uh, that's the world we live in. Yeah, it really is. Any- well, I'd like, yeah, I just want to... Uh, Thank both of our guests for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciated it. Uh, Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And Bob, we also, in addition to thanking our guests, want to remind our listeners they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows, including this one, Lawyer to Lawyer, on iTunes. We have an Android app where you can access all of the LTN shows on your phone, and we hope to shortly have an iPhone app, and uh, we're poking at our uh, producers to, to uh, see where that is. 
So we'll hopefully have that out shortly, but you can check it out. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We'll see you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network. Its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.